Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. One of the most unflattering pictures that you'll find in the book of Proverbs is the description of a scoffer. We don't use that word very much in modern society, but it basically refers to someone who's always insulting, always mocking. And in the book of Proverbs, they're mostly mocking and insulting the person who's trying to teach them or counsel them. Proverbs 9 verse 7 says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets abuse for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, the next verse says, or he will hate you. That is someone, or a picture of someone who's so contemptuous for the truth of Scripture, so full of themselves that if you try to share with them any of these truths, they're going to react, they're going to respond out of a well of resentment and anger. If you take the time to try to help them, they will return the favor with verbal attacks, with attempts to humiliate you. And consequently, Proverbs 14.6 says, a scoffer seeks wisdom in vain. They may say they want wisdom, they may feel at times a need for wisdom, but because of their pride, because of their stubbornness, because they uh, have such a contempt for the truth, even when they back themselves into a corner, get themselves into a tight spot, uh, even though they may sense a need for wisdom, the scoffer will never get it. Why is that? Because as Proverbs 18, verse 2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. In other words, the abiding concern of the fool of the scoffer is to project some exaggerated impression of their own importance, to exalt themselves. Rather than finding wisdom that light might lie beyond them, the whole The whole enterprise is a calculation to shine the spotlight on themselves, a a sense of self-exaltation that just brings them back again and again and again to their own opinions. Here's the dangerous thing then about a scoffer who sees himself and, um, and their own opinions as the sage. They don't see themselves as scoffers. They don't realize who they really are. They actually present themselves as teachers, as those who have learned wisdom, as sages. They present themselves as the one who knows the answer to all the difficult questions. And so consequently, it's hard to teach them anything. Now, you may not think of yourself that way. You may not consider yourself a scoffer. But here's the real question. Here's the real test is how do you respond when you are presented with the truth of God, particularly a difficult truth, one that rubs against you, how do you respond when you find yourself in those vexing situations when you're seeking wisdom and you hear something from Scripture that you don't like? How do you respond? Well, this morning as we come to the book of James, James, James is teaching us about such trials, such kinds of times in your life, but he doesn't use 
this language of Proverbs. He doesn't use the word scoffer. Nevertheless, that is what he has in mind as we come this morning to James 1, verse 19 and 20 and 21. He's talking about a foolish person. He's talking about the person who doesn't delight in understanding, but only in expressing their own opinion, as we heard. The person who hears the Word of God from someone, but responds to it with irritation, with aggravation, with resentment, with annoyance. This is what James says in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, the context of this, what James is talking about really in the verses that precede and the verses that follow is the word of God. In fact, he Right there in verse 18, it's about this word of truth which has brought you forth. It is the word which caused you to be born again. It's the instrument, as we said last week, through which God powerfully brought about our salvation. Just like Paul told Timothy in first, uh, 2 Timothy uh, 3, that this is the scripture which is able to make you wise unto salvation. That's why he wanted Timothy to do nothing but preach the word in season and out of season. He wanted to devote himself to that and to nothing else. The scripture which is inspired by God. Well, James has just alluded to the very fact that if we are Christians, then we've already experienced the power of the word. It is the word of God that God used to bring about our new birth. And then Beginning in verse 22, he'll basically, for the rest of this chapter, warn us not to be then simply hearers of the word and not doers of it. He'll warn us not to be those who hear the word of God and don't respond. To those who are, those who are lacking, if you will, the follow through as we sit under its teaching. But before he gets to any of that, he really introduces to us what it is that would make you such a person, what it is that would, that would, I guess, generate this attitude which makes you a hearer only, someone who is not a doer, but simply a hearer. On top of that list, of course, would be anger, angry reactions to the Word of God, like the scoffer who, when you reproach him, he hates you. But there's really more than just that. And, and before we get into the details, by the way, let me just remind you the bigger picture here. James opened this whole letter writing about trials, telling us uh, that this is what, what God uses in our life. It's what He has prepared for us. And He opens it up giving us two key pieces of instruction. First of all, when you fall in these trials, you got to learn to count it joy because you understand what the trial's doing. It's, it's benefiting you. It's blessing you. So you got to learn, first of all, about finding joy in the trial. But secondly, you may remember, he told us that in the midst of the trial, if you need wisdom, then simply ask God for it. 
Ask God who gives to everyone generously. You got to ask Him, He says, in faith. You can't be double-minded. You can't be a person whose mind is divided between what God says and what the world says. That's a... um, a double-minded person. And James says, if you ask with that kind of double-mindedness, you won't receive anything from God. He doesn't answer those kinds of people. Well, now James, having sort of elaborated on all of that stuff, now he's coming down to the end of this chapter and he's still talking to us about our response to God and to His wisdom in the midst of trial. He's still talking about this issue of how we respond to God's Word. He's still continuing to focus his attention on what it would be which would impede you to deal with trials in the proper way, to be able to navigate through them, to get the wisdom you need in the midst of them. Earlier, it was the double-mindedness he dealt with, but now as we come to verse 19, He raises other issues. He deals with other dangers, the kind of dangers that would would impede or hinder your reception of the Word of God. And these dangers can cause you to miss the needed wisdom in these trials, can cause you to miss the opportunity for growth. They can basically define whether or not the trial is, you might say, wasted or whether or not it is something that benefits you, whether or not you are growing or whether or not you are stagnated, whether or not you are sanctified or whether or not you're finding joy in your trials. So, He gives these to us, these dangers that hinder your reception of the Word of God. They undermine, therefore, the benefits of the trial. And the first one we could just simply call the danger of superficial listening. The danger of superficial listening. The danger that you claim that you want to please God, you claim you want to do God's will, you claim you want to know what He says to you in the midst of the trial. The danger that you would make that claim, but in your life you really don't care what He has to say about your situation. You are in the danger of being a hearer and not a doer that James talks about in verse 22. And he addresses you here in verse 19. First of all, speaking to you as a brother or brethren or brothers or sisters, however your Bible translates it, someone who, who is uh, making a claim to love God, someone who makes a claim to being a Christian, but then he immediately reminds you that you cannot stop listening to God. You have to, in His words, you have to be quick to hear. You have to be quick to hear. In other words, you've got to make sure that in your profession of faith and in your desire to please God and you're seeking after wisdom, you have to make sure that you have a genuine, eager, attentive heart and mind that actually wants to understand what God's Word says. This was, of course, modeled by the noble-minded believers of Berea who were told, received the Word with all eagerness, examining Scriptures daily to see if the things that were told to them were true. They were eager. They weren't passive and, and somewhat superficial listeners. They were 
eagerly searching the Scriptures. Or like the early church, you remember, who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching day by day, looking into it and trying to understand it. Their attitude was evident in their hunger for the Word of God. It dictated a focus and an attentiveness. This is the exact opposite of a scoffer. Exact opposite of what the Proverbs describes as the person who loves to be simple. He says in Proverbs one twenty two, How long, O simple ones, would you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Now, these aren't people who come out in front and just say, look, I hate knowledge. Don't tell me. Don't talk to me. I don't want to learn anything. That's not, that's not the way this works. That's not the way it operates. They are people who would feign some desire to know. In fact, they might actually present themselves as, as those who have knowledge. They want to opine on their wisdom. But by their repeated rejection of true knowledge, they really demonstrate an indifference to the truth, an apathy to it, a reluctance to embrace it. And so the writer says, how long will you go on like this? It implies it had been a long time. Maybe from their childhood, maybe from their rearing in their home. Their parents had faithfully taught them the Scripture over and over and over again, and they just won't listen. They just don't have an ear for the truth. They want to hear what everything else or what everyone else in the world has to say, but they don't want to hear what God has to say. They haven't embraced it. Instead of committing their way to the Lord, committing their way to His Word, they remain open, they remain uncommitted, they remain what the, what the Proverbs call simple or we might say gullible naive, conceited in their own opinions. And the issue is not mental capacity. It's not a lack of exposure. They've heard the truth. They just lack a commitment to it. And when they hear it, they don't receive it. When they hear it, they, are, they don't want to be bound by it. When they hear it, it undermines their pride. It exposes their foolishness. They don't want it. And so they make excuses. They, they approach it in a half-hearted way. They may even mouth the words of Scripture from time to time. They like to toy around with a, a verse here or there. They like to put on, dim, uh, on display what they may know. But the pathway that ultimately guides them is essentially one of their own wisdom. They do not have a heart to truly understand. And James is trying to correct all this. He's trying to correct all this. You would think that someone who is in the squeeze of a trial, you would think that someone who is in the vice would be so ready to get whatever wisdom they have, but he knows the nature of our prideful hearts. And so he's saying, you need to make your ear attentive. You need to be quick to hear, eager to hear, especially in a trial 
A trial that is intended to expose your weaknesses, to test your faith, to bring to light those still unsanctified areas of your heart and mind. A trial that's meant to build your spiritual endurance. Too often people get into trials and their first goal isn't necessarily to see what they can learn or to see how they can grow. Their immediate attention is how can they escape? How can they ease the pain? How can they find some temporary relief? They're not looking for ways to be made more like Christ. They're not grieving over the sin that's being brought to the surface. They're not, they're not ashamed of the foolishness that is being brought out. They just want relief. Or they want to salvage their pride and maintain some social standing. Or they want some easy, quick answer. They don't want to be inconvenienced. They certainly don't want to, they don't want to wade through a bunch of theology. They don't want to have a bunch of God talk. All of those things cause them to not be attentive. Or to be superficially attentive to counsel. And so they never really focus in and they never truly try to understand what God's Word is telling them in the midst of the trial. But if you are going to properly benefit in what you're going through, you had better put on your ears. You'd better prepare your heart to really search the Scripture for God's truth about your life, about your soul, about your situation. Secondly, if you're going to find wisdom for trials, not only do you need to put away this superficial listening, but you need to deal with the danger of rash responses. The danger of rash responses. And he takes that up in the verse to verse 19 when he says that not only do you need to be quick to hear, but you need to be slow to speak and slow to wrath. In other words, you need to not only open your ears, you need to close your lips. And again, this deals with the tendency of the scoffer and the fool who takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. In other words, when a counselor goes and tries to help, they try to share with the scoffer or the fool, this this person, they try to help them see whatever is going on in their life and what they need to learn. They can hardly get into any kind of explanation without being cut off by the person they're talking to who is so eager to share their opinions and their insights about their own demise. They want to give their take. They want to give their slant. They want to they want to give you whatever they consider to be their pearls of wisdom. And so you can hardly teach them anything or really give them any wisdom in the midst of trial because they're so busy churning out advice and counsel to others. I'll never forget um, when I was a young man just coming out of seminary, um, I have the same problem every seminarian had. I had no money and no books. And so I put an ad in the paper. And if you're under 40, this is something they used to print every day or so. 
and uh, you could put things in it kind of like Craigslist, okay? But you would print these things in the paper and they, pay, they charged you by the word or by the letter. I didn't, I didn't want to pay a lot, so I just, really simple, I put uh, young pastor, uh, need theological books, can't pay much, you know, something like that. And so I just uh, put it out there and I remember getting a call from a guy and uh, he said he had several shelves of books that he wanted to, uh, uh, to get rid of, to sell. So I went over, I remember going to his apartment kind of uh, way back in the back of this uh, big complex and uh, we met and I looked at the books and there was some good stuff there. So I sort of made a bid on the, on the whole thing and we were boxing it up and, and I couldn't help myself. I was just curious, like, you know, this guy had some halfway decent books I was just curious, why, why are you getting rid of these things? I mean, uh, how did you come about them? And um, he said, well, I'm a, I'm a marriage counselor, and, uh, but I've been through a divorce recently. I'm trying to kind of get some funds because uh, I'm in need right now. And I was, you know, I was so dumbstruck. I, I just couldn't even mouth the words, do you think you ought to consider a different profession? I mean, it was so glaring And it can be so glaring when you're talking to someone and their life is falling apart. And yet you have to endure as they lecture about all the things they know. I remember talking to a lady one time who uh, I was talking to her about uh, something in her marriage and she immediately began to tell me how much I could learn about marriage from her because she had been through four of them. Listen, credibility is not earned by starting marriages, right? But by maintaining them. But this is the mind of a scoffer. They, they can't hear wisdom because they got their mouth open. Because they won't stop uh, sharing what they believe to be their own insights, the profundity of their own mind. Some people never really stop to hear God's wisdom because they never really sit down and close their mouth to learn. In their mind, they have all the answers or they certainly want to talk a lot like they do. They want to share what they know. They want to express their opinions or give their insights or tell you their perspective. James is telling you this is part of your problem. Not only do you need to be quick to hear, but you need to be slow to speak. In fact, later on in James 3.1, he'll actually tell you, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Don't take it upon yourself to blast your opinions out there. Don't take it upon yourself. Don't presume to, to just give everyone, share everyone your insights. It ought to strike you with fear, to give you a sense of trembling or make you somewhat reluctant. I don't understand really these people who are so eager to get on some, some uh, social network and, and start teaching everyone. I mean, I... I love to study. I love to learn. I love, but this terrifies me. I would honestly rather not. 
It gives me trembling because I know there's an accountability whenever I have to stand and represent the Word of God. The Lord says sometimes when you are called, sometimes whenever you are presented with the truth, whenever you are counseled, whenever you hear the Word of God, the best thing you can do is just to stop talking. Stop presuming like you have anything to offer. Be slow to speak. Be slow to share your opinion. In fact, there are some people, even while you're talking to them, you can tell they are in their mind formulating some demonstration of their profound insight, their acumen, and he just says, stop. And also, by the way, be slow to wrath, which is which you also sometimes get, especially if you start to lean in on a situation a little bit with the Word of God. You're trying to share the truth of God, and people just react angrily. They are offended that you would want to point out to them some truth that's so obvious or that you would want to talk to them about selfishness or foolishness or pride or any of those things, and they just get irritated. And they respond with, with wrath, with anger. Again, the Proverbs say, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. They're offended, they believe, or they can't believe, I should say, that you would say such things to them. They, they act as if they never would even consider uh, the kind of things, the kind of sin that you're trying to address, as if it's never even uh, entered into their mind, which just exposes the fact that they've never confronted it in their hearts. I'm never surprised when someone talks to me about my sin. They don't know the half of it. When you, when you are humbly listening to God's Word, you are dealing with it all the time. And so when this person comes looking for help in the trial, you begin to point them to the Word of God. They, they're not really looking for that. They just want a quick and easy answer or they want another time to justify themselves and put on display everything they know. And when you really begin to talk to them about whatever's going on in their life, there is annoyance and aggravation. You just make them angry when you talk about these things. You, it irritates them that you keep bringing up things from the Word of God and they become quarrelsome and argumentative and they challenge you on every point. And this is their response Because whether they want to admit it in their heart or not, they have become a scoffer. They are cynical. They are distrustful. They are suspicious. They are skeptical about the Word of God, about God's pathway. In their minds, they've heard it all. They've tried it all. There's nothing else they can learn. And so they're just angry. But James points out the obvious truth and the reason why he's saying this in verse 20. For the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. I mean, this ought to be obvious to you. This kind of anger doesn't point you or lead you 
in any kind of direction that you ought to go. I mean, he assumes you want to be righteous. He assumes that you want to do what pleases God, or at least you claim to, but your anger is not going to produce it. It's going to hinder your efforts. And it doesn't matter if you couch it in religious garb, which people often do. You'll sometimes see people with pious pride, clever people, who are just as angry as anyone else, but they cloak it and they cloud it when they're confronted with theological rebuttal or with sort of interpretive wrangling or, or arguing over words. And they, they, they do all this, but inside you can see that they're boiling with anger. They don't like the fact that you're trying to confront them, and they actually would present their anger as, as some sort of righteous response. But James says that's not leading to anything righteous. It's not a pathway to godliness. I've mentioned this to you a couple times, but over in chapter 3, in verse 13, this is the epicenter of James's whole letter, a kind of contrast between two wisdoms that he, he deals with again and again and again throughout the letter. And, and when you're in a trial and when you're seeking counsel and you're trying to find ways to grow in your faith and your walk and, and you... You've got to be aware of these two kinds of wisdom. One's from above and one is from the earth, he says. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This isn't the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. That is the, that's the fruits of them. They bring this kind of chaos. But wisdom from above, he says, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is where a harvest of righteousness comes from. Anger doesn't produce it. The anger of man doesn't produce righteousness. What produces righteousness is a heart of peace. What produces righteousness is a meekness, a a gentleness, an openness to reason, a willingness, as some translations say, to yield. The anger of man doesn't produce that, it doesn't cultivate that, it doesn't plant that. It comes from bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, vain boasting, and all of those things point to someone who at that moment is being guided by the wisdom of the world. Even if you claim to be the wise one, even if you claim to have wisdom, if that is the manifestation of your wisdom, if it is this disorder and this anger and this bitter jealousy, it's not the wisdom from above and it will not produce the righteousness of God. So, when you hear counsel, when you hear God's Word, 
Don't respond rashly. Don't speak. Allow your heart to be open. Be quick to listen. And don't listen superficially. Don't listen superficially. Well, thirdly, if you're going to find wisdom in the midst of trial, not only do you need to deal with these dangers of superficial listening and rash responses, but you also need to deal with the danger of common corruptions. The danger of common corruptions. This comes out in James 1.21 with a couple of these conditional participles. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Here he uses language about putting away or putting off or literally it's, it's the word for disrobing, taking off your cloak and taking off your coat. It's typical in these days that people would wear some sort of outer garment that they would work in and they would get obviously out in the field and it would get the muck and the mud and everything on it. So when they came in, they would take that off. Or when they walked through the streets of the town and it got all the dust and the dirt and the filth that came off of the streets, they would come in and they would strip off those, those, those garments. Well, James is using the same language here. Put it away. Put it off. Put all that stuff that sort of attached itself or tried to attach itself to you from the world, you need to put that stuff off. Beginning with, first of all, filthiness, which is obviously a word for impurity, uncleanness, pollution, dirt, contamination, whatever you want to call it. He's obviously, James is talking about this in a moral sense, not in a literal sense, but he's talking about everything that is foul, everything that is obscene, everything that is vulgar, everything that is coarse and indecent. He's saying you need to deal with those things which you may harbor in your heart and mind. You might have, you might have accommodated them in some way, made a place for them in your heart. Perhaps you've begun to secretly cherish them. You need to realize that these are the things which are going to make it impossible for you to really receive counsel. They pollute the purity of the message. They contaminate and poison the fluid of godly counsel as you try to drink it down. This is part and parcel of a double-minded person who James tells us in chapter 4 Although they have friendship with the world, they're at enmity with God. They want to maintain friendship with the world. They want to be recognized as knowledgeable and savvy and, and, and with it. But in fact, they're polluted. They're contaminated. So let not the double-minded man think he'll receive anything from God. You really can't receive the word. You're not putting these things aside. Some people will try. Even while their life is crumbling around them, they will try to accommodate this filthiness while pretending to listen to godly wisdom, and it won't work. Secondly, James says you need to get rid of the rampant wickedness or the abundance of of wickedness, or the NIV probably gives the best or captures the idea best when it says the evil that is so prevalent. The evil that is so prevalent. This is referring to all of the thinking and all the 
perspective that surround you every day is basically the assumption of this world which is materialistic, it is temporal, it is ungodly, it is atheistic. It's the attitude that is prevalent all around you all the time. It pumps out its perspective on happiness, its perspective on fulfillment, its perspective on beauty, its perspective on marriage, its perspective on success, on achievement, on fame, on truth, on prosperity. It is prevalent. It is everywhere. It's what Paul in Ephesians 2 calls the course of this world, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And it doesn't necessarily introduce itself to you every day as anti-wisdom or anti-God, but as it seeps into your life like a contaminant groundwater into a well and you begin to drink it down over and over and over again, never questioning it because it is so prevalent until you just simply are so polluted in your mind that you can't even hear the Word of God anymore. Listen, wisdom isn't measured by mass. Wisdom isn't measured by the number of people that embrace it. Just because it is prevalent by no means means that it's wise. Just because everyone accepts it, just because everyone does it, just because everyone pursues it and glorifies it does not mean that it is pure or that it produces the desired result. This is so much the danger in our media society. In the old days, I guess, you know, I I really am even a child of this media society, but in the old days, if someone was promoting something, they largely did it in the context of a life where you could see the outcome of their life. You knew whether or not it was working for them. But here, here you have the opportunity to see all kinds of images, well-cropped, sometimes filtered in various ways, well-presented images with all kinds of ideas and worldly wisdom, but no concept behind it how destructive it is in the person's life. James just calls it wickedness, and it's prevalent. It is everywhere. But as you begin to feel the pinch of temptation, as you begin to find the the biting pain of trial, he says, if you want to have wisdom to know how to get out of that, if you want to have wisdom to know how to grow through it, we should say, then what you need to do is you need to recognize the pervasive and abundant nature of foolishness and wickedness and impurity that's all around you. And you need to cut it off. Limit yourself. Restrict yourself. Govern yourself by nothing but the wisdom of the Word of God. It's interesting language Paul uses here. He says you do this, you set it aside and receive the implanted Word. Someone might ask, I think, good question, if it's already implanted, why do I need to receive it? I mean, if it's already there, 
Why do I need to receive it? Well, James is probably making a reference here to the new covenant. The fact that God implants his word, he writes his law on our hearts. He puts it there. He implants it. In other words, James is acknowledging that the people he's writing to are believers. He's already called them back in verse 19, brothers. But even though you are a Christian, you can still find yourself resistant to God's truth because you've allowed your mind to become so polluted with this rampant wickedness. You've allowed these common contaminations to cloud your judgment to shape your values, to direct your steps, to find your relationships. And even when in your heart you feel conviction, even when the implanted word is bothering you inside, you just suppress it and pursue this worldly way of thinking. James says, you, if you want to receive the wisdom that comes from this implanted word, you need to lay that stuff aside. And then fourthly, if you're going to find wisdom that you need for trials, you're going to have to finally deal with the danger of personal pride. The danger of personal pride, which is simply the last part of verse 21. You need to receive this word with meekness. Meekness. We might say pliability moldable, uh, teachable, humble, recognizing your own blindness, recognizing your own need, willing to confess the brokenness of your situation, your world, your life, everything that you have made it into because of your own sinful choices. So you need to have meekness, humbling yourself under the Word of God, which is so often challenging, especially when you have gotten so deep into some situation. You're in a trial in a tough spot because, because of what you've done and you hear the Word of God and you realize it's actually going to increase your pain. It's actually going to make things more painful. What God's Word's telling you to do is actually inconvenient cut off that relationship, end that particular pursuit, lay aside that practice that you have indulged in so much, confess the pride that you have put on display, humble yourself under, uh, before those with whom you've had conflict. The Word of God might actually call you down a pathway that's going to increase your pain. It might require you to make adjustments in your plans and your designs and your schemes. And so you build up a resistance. You're no longer pliable. You're no longer moldable. You don't approach the Word of God with the kind of meekness that you're supposed to have. Well, you're not going to receive anything. You're still a double-minded person. You're not going to find the wisdom that you need, unfortunately. You'll continue to suffer under the consequences. You need to work on meekness because this is the wisdom that's from above. You need to work on peaceableness, gentleness, humility. As I said in James 3, a 
I like the translation that says, willing to yield. You need to work on that kind of wisdom. Why? Because verse 21 says, this is the word of God which is able to save your soul. Not that they aren't saved, but he's just pointing to the fact that this is the scripture, the very scripture which has already demonstrated its power to save you from the power of sin. It's already proven itself in your life. And it's saving work. It's, we might say it's delivering work. It can continue. It can continue to deliver you from sin. It continue to sanctify you, deliver your soul, rescue you from iniquity, from foolishness, and everything that goes along with it. It can continue to do all that if you have the kind of meekness that would receive it. Listen, don't be just a hearer. Don't be just a hearer of the word. Be a doer. Be someone who benefits when they hear the word of God. And from that, you find growth. You find sanctification. You find restoration. You find that the Lord, when you humble yourself under his mighty hand, he exalts you in due time. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Some of you here today, you have resisted the word of God. You've heard it preached. You've heard the call of repentance and the gospel, but you have not responded. This morning, our challenge to you is let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day that you open your ears and close your mouth, that you stop being the person with all the excuses on why you will not receive Christ. Humble yourself before Him, and He'll save your soul. Father, we're grateful this morning for these truths, these reminders. They penetrate and expose us in so many areas, but areas where we need to be challenged. Some of us have grown resistant to your word for too long. We've withered along the way. Revive us again. Give us the meekness of spirit with which we once approached you. And help us to drink again from your wisdom and find grace in the midst of our trials. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.